There's something about that song, though it's very overplayed these days, there's something about that song that speaks to us wanting to be famous, wanting to succeed, wanting to perform. And today I'd like you to uh, give a warm horizon welcome to to my friend Brad, who's played actually for the Bengals as well. Brad, come on up. Brad, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, You became a performer. What we love about these kind of NFL highlights is these, uh, you know, Memories as performance. You were a performer as well. But before we get into how you ended up in the NFL, let's back up to what happened early in life because some of what happened tragically in your life led to you becoming a performer. Um, I believe we all have our own story. And uh, my story really started out uh, when my mom was 15, my dad was 16. They had to get married because of me. Back then, that wasn't really cool. Um, and, um, and there was a lot of shame and rejection in my life. I could never remember a time where I was held or cuddled, uh, where I was wanted. Um, I was abused every way except sexually, physically, mentally, emotionally. I was uh, beat practically every day. I was pinched, um, strangled. Mm. Epitomize it would be when I'm seven or eight years old, getting ready for school, Another, just another typical day, and my mom lost it, and she's slamming my head against the wall, and she says, it's your fault, it's your fault. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be in this mess. Mm. And, um, but as I'm growing up, the one thing that I started noticing was that when I was playing Little League sports, and I was the star of the game, my mom and dad were a little nicer to me that day. You know, if I hit the home run or if I was the star of that little league team, because one, the parents would talk to them about that. And uh, so as a result, that became an issue where I just performed. And I was able to do things that I shouldn't have been able to do for someone my size. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, as an athlete in high school, getting all city. It was not all state, but uh, really performing to the point where, Everybody knew who Brad Kuzma was because as an athlete. And my home life was a total disaster, totally dysfunctional in every way. Um, And my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was a rageaholic. And uh, on the outside, everybody thought we were the perfect family. But on the inside, it was just absolutely horrendous. Um, Mm. I had no frame of reference. That's all that I knew. Sure, sure. But the performing didn't just work well for you during that stage. You sort of said, that's the way I'm going to get my approval from here on out, right? I'm going to be a performer. Yeah, when I look back on it, that's what it was. But I wanted to go to college, and there was no college scholarships, and and my dad worked in a glass factory in Toledo. And so, um, in essence, I went as a walk-on, and I got a job working in a storm sewer, uh, 20 feet underground, digging out crap out of the sewer systems around Toledo, and that's how I paid for my first quarter of school. Went Mm. to Miami University. When there's a walk-on, it was back in the 1971 through 75 when they were undefeated for three or four years, and I was the team, and I ended up getting a scholarship, making it, um, and then I became big man on campus. Everybody knew who Brad Kuzma was. I was the star of the undefeated team, and I was most of a player of the league for two years in a row, beat out a guy named Jack Lambert, you know, my junior, his senior um, went on and, and repeated, became an All-American, a consensus, consensus All-American, but was not drafted. Got a tryout with the Cincinnati Bengals, 1975, the last time they were 6 or 7-0. and 0. It was mm-hmm. my rookie year. And, um, you know, from that, man, I was, I was big man in the city now, and mm-hmm. I loved it. I ate it up. I went to all the nightclubs. I did all the things. 
uh, you know, but it was all me, me, me. Yeah. And, um, and so from the outside, it looks like you've made it. You're, you got the resume. You got what everybody else is hoping for. And yet on the inside, things aren't necessarily as good as you look on the outside. Yeah, I've got huge holes in my heart. Of course, at that time, I didn't know what it was. But, I mean, it was rejection. I mean, I, for me to ask a girl out was like it, it was terrible. I mean, I would literally go for weeks because I would, didn't want to go through that rejection. Hmm. That was when girls didn't ask you out. Now I guess it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, any, anyway, and so I, I was traded to the, to the Chicago Bears. Paul Brown retired. Tiger Johnson became the coach. I was traded to the Chicago Bears. I went in there with a real chip on my shoulder, arrogant. I wanted to be the next. I was going to make them forget who Dick Buckwitz was by the time I got done out of there. And um, after about five or six weeks, I, it really hit me. They weren't going to give me a chance to play. So I, what I ended up doing was I went to the coach in my arrogance and said, Coach, either play me or trade me. And the next day they waived me. Hmm. And my life ended as I knew it at that point in time because everything I was was based on the number on my back. And when I and I ended up starting to play about six weeks later with the New York Giants and then eventually with the Pittsburgh Steelers, but that left such a mark in my life that I that I started reading all kinds of books and it just came down to the point where I really um, just recognized that I am I'm defective. The rest of my life, what's going to happen to my life? Yeah. And the thing is, when I was reading the books, there was a common theme through all of them, and it was that there was a higher power. They never said. Jesus Christ, never. It was always either the universal subconscious mind or it was the infinite, you know, mm-hmm. source out there, or maybe sometimes they said God. But, you, but they all said you need something. Yeah, bigger, I, the bigger than yeah, yourself. Yeah, I needed something like that. And, and, and I, I went on a search. I was looking because I knew there was something wrong with me, why I felt the way that I did. I'm 23 years old. Life was good. I'm, I'm strong. I'm, I'm a name. I'm playing football again, but I still had this hurt in my heart wondering what was going on. Yeah. And through all that, what I ended up basically coming to the realization was that if I wanted to be a success, I started asking people. I'd go up to people that looked like they had their life together, and they they. I'd say, what's the secret? Give me the tape, the book. What do I need to read? Give me the, 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 slow, the, the, the recipe. And it, if it happened once, it happened 20, 25 times. I said, well, if you really want to know, it's, it's, it's a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And I said, oh, please, I don't want to hear that. And that's the last thing I want to hear. Sure. You know, give me, yeah, you're holding out on me. And through the long and short of it was, is as I was going through all of this process, God was at work in my life in such a way that I went to a church service at one point in time. There was an altar call. I didn't know what an altar call was. And I went, and people were laughing and crying and hugging and tears, and I felt nothing. I got no chill bumps. I got nothing that made it look like that I, God accepted me. And so I hear I thought God rejected me. Yeah. That, you know, that, you know I, what did I do? I must have did something so bad. Yeah. Came back home, and within a very short period of time, started... Going to, I went to a, to a Christian bookstore. I'd never been to a Christian bookstore in my life. And then, I, and then from there, I would get up at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm now playing with the New York Giants. I got this off season, And I, next thing I know, it would be 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was like I couldn't get enough. It was like every day for months. You're reading the Bible hour at a time, unprompted. and Hours at a time. It yeah. was just like I had this hole in my heart that I needed. Nobody told me I needed to do it. I just did. I couldn't get enough of it. And what, I started changing. And almost immediately, God took my mind. I had a 
terrible mouth. I mean, I cussed and cursed and swore all the time. JC this and GD this and, and like this because that's what my mom and dad did and that's what the locker room does. Sure. And God took that away almost immediately. I had a huge temper and God, God took that away. My kids have never heard me swear. Not because I'm, I was trying to stop swearing. God took that away. Yeah. Now there's been lots of other things that I'm still in process. You're still waiting for him to take away. Yeah, yeah. We have still some of those. Yeah. I don't want sure. Yeah, sure. But, you know, one of the things that really hit me is I knew that I was so defective because I saw Tammy, the way that she felt about her. her, her by the way, Miss Tammy is my wife. We've been married <laughs> for 38 years. And so I... I there was something special she had with her family that I surely didn't have with mine. I didn't get huh. excited. And I can still remember coming back from the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, camp. Had a couple days there. My newborn baby, about three weeks old, court. I'm holding him on the back porch, tears coming down my eyes, saying, God, change me because I want my son to feel one half as good about me when he's 25 years old mm. as what Tammy does about her parents. Because it was going to have to take God to do that. Because I didn't know what to, how to be a parent. I didn't know yeah. how to be a father. Right. I didn't know how to be a, a relationship. Mm. Fast forward 30 years. God changing me in many different ways. As he's doing it. It's been a process. A long process. Sure. Tough times. Difficult times. Challenging times. Mm-hmm. And I get letters from my kids. You know, I've, I've got lots of trophies and trinkets and success, you know, being at the top and the best and all that stuff. Hmm. I've got about four dozen of these, and I wouldn't trade them for all the money in the world. Hmm. Here's my son, that one I was holding, a swaddling cloth. Too much to read, he says, but you you were and are the best father a kid could uh, ever wish for. You are the father I want inspired to be to my children. Hmm. As I look at my life, past and present, I know that God has blessed me tremendously. I thank Him for Case, Cole, Shade, and Mom. The bottom line is, God has blessed me with so much, but allowing me to be your son is one of the greatest gifts, blessings He has bestowed upon me. Hmm. That was that little swaddling boy who's now 35, got four, got got three great kids. My daughter writes to the man I'm so proud to call my dad. You've taught me so many things in my life and shaped me to be the woman that I am. She goes to church here. My other son, uh, one of my other sons, I've got four, three sons. The reason I wanted to write a letter to you is because I wanted to write to my hero, my role model, and to the person I respect the most. You've raised four incredible children and have grown up to become an amazing example of what it means to have godly parents. Hmm. That's God in action in me, not me doing it. And the holes of my heart have been filled because God has come in and changed me to the point where my kids are proud to say that I'm their dad. Hmm. And I surely wasn't able to say that about my parents. Wow. Let me pray for you and pray for everyone here. Father, we just thank you for this story. We thank you for Brad's openness. We know that many of us have success. We have titles. We have trophies. We have awards. 
And yet in some sense we, we sense that there's something deeper, bigger, more meaningful that we're longing for, that we'd like on our shelf to be said about us. And thank you for how you've redeemed the rejection of his past and have used it to shape him and to impact generations. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we thank Brad? I asked Brad a couple months ago to share his story because it's almost a direct reflection of the story we're going to study today of a man named Jephthah. If you remember back from psychology class, Eric Erickson talked about the socio, um, psychosocial development and how when we don't receive love early on in life, it flows downstream. And that's what you just saw in Brad talking about, that early on in your life, if you have a lack of trust, that lack of trust early on spills over into shame and doubt, that spills out into future generations in guilt, a lack of confidence, role confusion, isolation, and then even into retirement, instead of having something to give to others, is a sense of stagnation. What is this really about? What you don't receive flows downstream. On the positive side, Erickson found that if you build with trust, you get a sense of identity autonomy, which leads you in relationships to initiate industry, identity, identity, Industry, you have an ability to uh, experience intimacy with other people because you do have something to give. And later on in, in life, it leads to what he calls generativity, the ability to invest in other people, to give to other generations and to have something to impact others. What we have flows downstream. And what we didn't get flows downstream is what he says. And that is why you and I are drawn toward environments of unconditional love. See, many of us find ourselves hanging out at work because at love we feel res- at work we feel respected, we feel honored, we feel loved, and we don't necessarily feel that at home. So we are drawn toward we, we become a workaholic even because we love the environments that honor us and esteem us. Now, some of us we say yes to way too many things, and we ask ourselves, why do I keep saying yes when I'm already so busy? It's because we are drawn toward environments where we feel accepted. Where people say, wow, you're the best mom, you're the best dad, oh, thanks for coaching again. And even though you sort of have no margin in your life, you keep are drawn to these environments because they meet this need for approval that you have. We wonder why our kids begin to hang out with worthless fellows and people doing this and smoking that and, and, and participating in habits you wouldn't necessarily approve of. And, and I bet if you asked them or, or looked at it, you'd, you'd hear them say, because I'm accepted by this group. I'm loved by this group. This group accepts me and draws me in. We're drawn toward environments of unconditional love. And the problem with Erickson is saying is that if you're not a receiver early in life, if you don't receive the kind of love and trust that, that God designed for you, you will naturally become a performer. When you're not a receiver, you become a performer. You're now performing for that love you never had. You're performing for that, for that acceptance you ever always wanted. And what you saw in Brad is what I see in myself very often. It's what we certainly see in Jephthah's life. Because Jephthah, he becomes a performer. A warrior's warrior, a man's man. This guy is an incredible mercenary. He's a commander. He's a scholar. In every way he succeeds. And yet he never dealt with a rejection of the past. And when he wasn't a receiver, it spills out in very destructive ways in his family. And I'm hoping as we study his life, we're going to discover what motivates us in our performance. 
and destroy some of the lies before it eat away at our relationships and our generativity that we want to influence. Let me tell you about a story. His story begins, sadly, actually, in boot camp. Boot camp in his life, his childhood was very challenging. See, Jephthah is known as a Gileonite. He is known as a mighty warrior. He's a mighty man of valor, it says. But if you go back through time to when he was born, he was the son of a harlot. He was an illegitimate child. And Gilead had other sons, but it was through a prostitute that he got Jephthah. Jephthah's wife had other sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they turned to Jephthah by no cause of anything he had done, and they said, get out of here. They drove him out of the house. They drove him out of their community. They said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. In fact, you're not a real son. You're not really accepted. You have no inheritance among us. And in boot camp, he was used. He was abused. He was thrown out. He was not accepted. And his reaction to that is he runs far, far away from that place of rejection to a place called Tob. And here in Tob, he is going to prove them wrong. He is going to become the best commander, the best performer. He is going to become the person that they are going to say to themselves, how could we have cut him? How could we have done that? He is going to prove to others through his performance that he was worthy of their love and affection. So he hangs out in Tob. And he finds himself drawn to a group of worthless fellows that accepted him and loved him. He becomes an incredible leader and mercenary, trains himself to be the best scholar, the best diplomat, and the best military commander. He will never be hurt again. He'll never let anyone hurt him again. He'll never let anyone reject him the way he'd been rejected before. He's going to prove to others that I'm worth it. I think we've all spent some time in Tobe trying to prove to somebody that we were worth it. A mom, a dad, a coach. It wasn't even they were malicious about it. We just always wanted them to say that they were proud of us and they loved us. Not because we performed, but just because we were who we were, but we never got it. So we had to perform to get it. If I can pull up on a map, show you what it might look like if you're doing a play-by-play here in Israel. This is the Dead Sea down here um, on the bottom, and this is uh, the Sea of Galilee up top. The orange team is our team of uh, the Israelites, and they kick Jephthah out. And then the Ammonites, the A's for the Ammonites, begin to crowd in. Here's what happens. They kick Jephthah out. He heads up to Tob, and the Ammonites are going to move in. And as they move in, Israel does not have the capacity anymore, so they send their number one guy up to get Jephthah, where he's learning, he's training, he's become a mighty warrior. Hey, will you come back with us? And Jephthah's like, all right. So Jephthah comes back with them to the very people who rejected him. Why would he do that? Why would he come back to these people who hurt him so badly? Why wouldn't he set up better boundaries? Well... Let's look at the speech that number one guy from his hometown gave that challenged him to come back. I'll put it up on the screen behind me. Here's the, uh, the passage. It came to pass that after a time that the people of Amnon made war against Israel. So it was the people of Amnon made war against Israel. The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah. And so the elder goes way, 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 travels all the way to Tob. And, and he, he comes and he finds Jephthah. He says, Jephthah! We want you to be our man. 
We want you to come lead us. Be our head. Be our champion. Will you come back and help us? You'll be the hero. You'll be cheered. It'll, everything. You're the head. Jephthah's like, aren't you the guys that hated me? Aren't you the guys that rejected me and drove me out and now you want me to come and be your leader? Now that I've made something of myself? You think he's going to tell him off. But inside Jephthah's heart of this mighty warrior is somebody who has always wanted the affection and approval of others. And he specifically wanted the approval of these very people who had rejected him. And how does, does he get an apology from the commander? No, the commander says, well... Let's not talk about that. Bygones be bygones. I'm here now, aren't I? And here's the thing. If you'll do this, if you'll come back with us and, and defeat the Ammonites, you'll be our head. We'll make you the head. We'll make you the commander. We'll make you the leader. I mentioned it several times in the passage. You'll be the head, the head, the head. And something in there is like, oh, I have longed for that my whole life. I'm a mercenary. I'm a commander. I'm a sought-after name in tow. But I really wanted to be known and loved and the head of my family and my country back home. That would satisfy me. That would meet the needs. And his need for approval is where he gets his ultimate identity. And he goes, oh, to be called the hero, the commander, the head of Israel. So he does go back. But here's the thing. Not what Brad shared is what Jephthah has. He's not performing from approval to go back and do the right thing. He's performing for approval. His whole life, what really motivates him, what really drives him, is he is performing for approval, not from approval. So he's got this big empty hole in him saying, I hope being the commander, I hope with the title of CEO of the country, I hope with all the people who look at me and go, wow, we shouldn't have rejected him. He made something of himself. And what Jephthah does is he makes approval of other people, one of my personal idols, by the way, his ultimate identity. But it will not satisfy. Because no longer are you loving people because you love them, you're loving people because you need something from them. See, you think you're giving, but you're really taking because you're performing for approval, not from approval. We've talked in the series about all the things that are supposed to satisfy. Approval won't satisfy. Neither will success. There was an article recently in Fast Company talked about how often the things that made Jephthah famous and successful we set up as the end all of our life. The writer says, of all the subjects we obsess about, success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin's fame will make us happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory, and then self-destructing. Maybe they didn't want it in the first place, or didn't like what they saw when they finally achieved it. This is not a Christian writer. Somebody's saying success doesn't ultimately satisfy. Approval doesn't ultimately satisfy. Power doesn't ultimately satisfy. It's a guy named James. He um, found his identity in having power over people. He's quite the womanizer. 
He never had any real intimate relationships because he's always performing for the sense of power over a woman. He would seduce her and then he'd lose interest in her because he, he got it. I got the power. He'd move on to somebody else. He became a Christian, got into Bible studies, and he found that he loved being right. That same thing that controlled him as a womanizer, as having power over people, is the same thing that controlled him once he became religious. He liked the idea of telling people why they were wrong and telling people why he was right. And though he would say he went from womanizing to being religious, the same thing still controlled him. Power over women, power over others. His functional God, his real identity hadn't changed. Power will not satisfy, nor will approval, nor will success. In fact, James Brooks was talking about NFL, and he said one of the challenges is that NFL players often find their identity, as Brad said, in, in their number, in their performance. And when they have an accident, when there's an injury, David Brooks says it's devastating. He says after an athlete has a serious injury, usually depression sets in. And it's not physiological. Why? It's simple. The injury sends them into an existential crisis. Who am I anyway? It's devastating. The loss of their athleticism has totally wiped out their reason for being. That is a great definition of what it means when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, what the Bible describes as an idol. This is my ultimate reason for being. And approval was such the ultimate reason for Jephthah's being that he's going to go back to the people who scarred him and wounded him so badly. And man, when he didn't receive, he's become a performer. Wow, can this guy perform? When Jephthah wasn't a receiver, we get to see him at the top of his game. We get to see him perform diplomatically and scholarly. He comes before the king and first says, hey, we don't have to go to war. Let me use my diplomatic skills. He comes face to face with the king. He's like, all right, king, here's what we got. Tell you a deal. How about we don't go to battle? I'll do this. You do this. Let's work with it. Let's make this thing happen. The king's like, not a chance. Oh, it didn't work. Well, let's try a scholarly. Like a lawyer, over about 40 verses, I'll put about five up there, he actually sits down and talks about why the Israelites actually have legal reference points to the property here. He goes over the history, we own the property, the deed went to here, it went to here, your guys actually don't have access to this, and he runs this incredible scholarly legal defense as to why this land legally belongs to them. The king's like, I don't care. To which Jephthah says, listen, I showed you my A game of diplomat, as a diplomat. I showed you my A game as a scholar. You do not want to see my A game as a military commander. The guy's like, prove it. Oh, thank you. I've been waiting for you to say that. Oh, my people have never seen me perform because I perform up in Tobe. They're about to see me perform in my homeland. And he performs militarily. He comes down on the blue line from Tobe all the way back to his hometown here with the Ammonites. And each one of these different colors are battles. I mean, he is battling all over Israel. Battle, win here. Battle, win there. Battle win here. It's battle after battle after battle. And they're like, wow, it's so great to have Jephthah back. Wow, we love Jephthah. Or at least we use him. We love him. Man, he's doing what we need him to do. That guy can perform. And he's battling and battling. He's pushing the Ammonites back. And they're almost gone. He's won some battles, but he needs to win the war. And God is coming upon him and using him because the Philistines and the, the Ammonites are just these horrific terrorist type 
nation of the horrible things they did to children, horrible things they did to women, burning of villages, and, and Amnon is, pu- I mean, uh, Jephthah is pushing them back. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Not because he did anything, not because he said anything, not because he did any vow, because God wanted to use him to push back the evil in his generation. And he did. He pushes them back, but he's got one last battle. And he pauses and he says to himself, oh, I've got to win this thing if I'm going to be the head. But I've learned my whole life there's no such thing as a free lunch. People don't accept you unless you perform. I'm here now because I'm performing. And he transfers that lie from his past to his relationship with God and says, God, I need you to perform, but I know that you don't do anything for nothing either. You wouldn't love me for just who I am. You wouldn't help me for just who I am. I I don't even have a context for grace or gift. I know about making deals, so I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to make a vow to you. Now, God never tells him to make this vow. God's not even happy with this vow. This vow stems from the rejection of his past. God, I need something for you, so I've got to give something to you. So he stands before God and says, here's the deal. If you will help me, if you'll do something, then I'll do something. That's the contract. That's the deal. If you will, if you will help me defeat the Ammonites, this last battle, then tell you what I'll do. I'll come home, and there'll be a celebration. People are cheering, Jephthah, Jephthah, Jephthah. First thing that comes out of my house, Biggest cow, biggest goat, whatever comes out from the herd. Whatever comes out from my house, I will sacrifice to you. That's my vow. You do your part, and I will do my part. And God delivers. Incredible battles occur. They win the day, and he comes home cheering, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he comes home, Jephthah, Jephthah, Jephthah. And as he comes home to celebrate, the door flies open and there is his daughter dancing her way out of the door with timbrels and dance. Dad, it's so good to see you. Oh, honey. Oh, honey. I wish you'd not come out of the door. Now I have to sacrifice you to God. Because God did his part, and I owe him, and I told him I would sacrifice you. To which this lie has been so modeled by him that his daughter doesn't even really push back at all. Well, Dad, that makes sense. There's no such thing in life as a free lunch. If God did his part, and you said you'd do your part, could I at least have a few more days to enjoy my life before you kill me? This lie that you cannot receive love without performing is so prevalent. It affects Jephthah's relationship with God. God, I know you need a vow. God never asked for a vow. In fact, God, over through the scripture, talks about this kind of vow being evil. It affects his relationship with the daughter who will lose her life because he never dealt with this lie. It reflects his relationship with his friends <laughs> because he's performing for their approval, doesn't even demand their apology, doesn't even, can't even set healthy boundaries. This lie has affected every relationship in his life Because when he didn't receive, he became a performer. And he'll lose his daughter because of it. You know why God takes idols so seriously? As we've gone through this series, we've looked at this this cycle I've described. That Israel will have a winning season. And when they have a winning season, that's when they throw out God's playbook. 
They say we found something more important than God to define ourselves. It's our success. It's our approval. It's our fame. And God removes his blockers and says, all right, if you don't want me to be your identity, I will step out of the way. And they get tackled. And you'll get tackled when you define yourself by the people's approval. You'll get tackled by the day that they don't like you, when you don't make your numbers, when somebody comes along, and they will, who will be better than you at whatever it is you do. And then you'll be depressed and devastated. You'll get sacked. And you'll say, God, oh, I don't know what happened. I need an identity. I need a purpose. On the outside, I look like everything's great, but on the inside, I'm dying inside. God, lead me. Show me. Help me. And this little lie of people's approval grew and grew and grew and cost Jephthah a relationship with God and will ultimately cost him decades he could have spent with his daughter doing an evil thing, thinking it's a good thing. The reason God takes idolatry so seriously, much more than external behavior, is because these little things have a high cost. How much is your finger worth? Just a little thing. Would you make a big deal if you lost one finger? How much would you have to pay for it? My dad lost his middle finger when he was a kid because he used to play with M80s. He used to make his own fireworks. So every time we would shoot off bottle rockets, he would remind us. He'd say, be careful. My dad would give us the finger, I guess, every time we play with fireworks. He had no middle fingernail. This last summer, two football players separately, two different occasions, decided to shoot off some fireworks, NFL players. One was a Jason Pierre-Paul, and the other was C.J. Wilson. And the process this last July, as they were heading into the NFL season, they both blew off one of their fingers. And in a moment, one little finger suspended a $60 million contract. Jason Pierre-Paul has since been offered a contract for one year to see if he can perform to get it back. But millions were lost on one little thing like a finger. C.J. Wilson, I think his career is over permanently. Endorsements and everything because of one little thing. And so we say, well, why is God so insecure that he just can't handle sharing us with approval? It's not that. The reason God takes these little things so seriously is because the cost to you psychologically, the cost to your family, the cost to the culture of putting something in your life besides God, is that the cost is incalculable, much like this finger. When we don't learn how to receive unconditional love from God, when we are not receivers, we become performers, and it will never fully satisfy And God wants you to know unconditional love. It doesn't come from religion. Religion is conditional. If you pray hard, then I love you. If you don't, then I don't. Oh, I I had a good day of being a moral person. Oh, no, I didn't. That's not unconditional grace. The grace of God is that you can perform. You'll still be a performer. But you're doing it because you love people, because you want to please God, because you know you are already pleasing to God. You're performing from a place of ultimate unconditional approval. Your mothering comes from that. Your fathering comes from that. Your parenting comes from that. No longer are you filling a gaping hole in your heart. How do we do that? I think I was advising Jephthah. I wrote down, these are in your notes as well, six quick steps. And these are not things you're going to write down and do right now. I put them in your notes so you can write them down. These are steps if you want to begin to trace how rejection has spread itself and made you into a really great performer. And if you want to undo the lie of that, here's some steps you might take. Step one. 
I would tell Jephthah, you've got to go back in your mind to those rejection moments and write them down. You need to pull out a piece of paper and find your rejection moments. It was what that coach said. It was what my mom didn't say. It's what my father didn't say. It was that job. It was that failed business. And I don't even want to think about it. Chad, I don't want to think about it. I've been running. I've been in tow not thinking about that for the last two decades. You've got to go back and figure out what got dropped into you in those rejection moments. Two, grieve those moments. Not blame, grieve. Your parents may not have known any better, but you need to grieve. And the only way you're going to be able to face that rejection and go back to those moments is if you know ultimate acceptance. Because you're ultimately accepted by God, because you found an identity that is not tied to whatever they said or whatever happened. Out of that ultimate acceptance, you can go back and grieve that this was a terrible chapter in your life. But it doesn't need to define you, but you need to grieve that from a place of ultimate acceptance. And then ask yourself, when that rejection occurred, what meaning did I assign to that? In those moments, we make certain decisions. We reassign meaning to those moments. I remember when my coach said, I remember my parents didn't. I remember when that business failed. I remember when that partner stuck his back. I remember when we had that divorce. Here's what I told myself that day. And I put some up on the screen. Some of the things you may have assigned to the meaning of rejection in your life. We'll start on, the, on your left. That rejection put something in you. The meaning you came away is, I am worthless. Some of you go, no, I don't relate to that. I became a performer. The meaning I took away from it is, I am worthwhile when I became a, 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 a... I am worthwhile when I get good numbers, when I hit the home runs. I am worthwhile when I have the popularity. I am worthwhile when... I didn't become worthless. I became a performer and I defined my identity by something fill in the blank. Some of us came out of rejection and said, I am what people say about me. Other of us came out and said, I am what I do today. I can't control what people say, but I can control what I do. And I will show people, I'll prove to people that I should be accepted. I am what others did to me. And you live with a sense of powerlessness or, or victimhood. And you wish you didn't, but you just that was the meaning that came out of that moment. Others of you said, no, I'm never going to be out of control again. People hurt me so bad, I will control life to never feel that way again. And the reason you struggle with control is not because you're a control freak, it's because you so don't want to experience rejection again. Some of us, out of those rejection moments, said, I should just stop trying, I won't change. Others said, I can't stop trying, because i got to change it, it's all up to me. Some of us are stuck in the past, and when that happened, others of us said, I refuse to look back at the past. That's why I'm hanging out in Tobe these days. Now, if you're a performer like me, you look at the list on the left and go, what a bunch of Eeyores. <laughs> Suck it up. Try harder. All these are equally dysfunctional. All these are symptoms of what happens when you don't receive and you become a performer. Some of us perform by saying, I guess I just will never do it. Some of us say, maybe I will, and we both wear ourselves out. Step four. Step four is that we need to examine our medication. What do I mean by medication? Anything I use to keep from feeling a feeling I don't want to feel. That's what medication is. 
anything you use to medicate loneliness, medicate meaninglessness, medicate pain, it could be performance. It could be escapism through too much TV or too much movies. It could be sex. It could be pornography. It could be good things like shopping or spending money or upgrading your car, upgrading your house. But you're not just upgrading your house. You're not just spending money. You're using it as medication to keep from feeling a feeling that you don't want to feel. And I would encourage you to write down what you think your medications are. Maybe to write down one of those lines. That's the meaning that drives me. And that's the medication that I use. Because unless you know what's driving you when you didn't receive, unless you know how you medicated that, you're not going to find freedom. And you may not sacrifice your daughter literally, but how many of us have sacrificed our families actually? Because our medication was our job, it was our career, it was our title, it was our next whatever. We sacrificed our marriage and our family. It just looked a little different in our culture. Step five. If I was to sit down with Jephthah, I would say, Jephthah, you've got to fast forward this lie, buddy. If you don't get this right, it's going to affect your relationship with God, and it's going to eventually cost you a relationship with your daughter. Fast forward this lie if you don't deal with it. And it's hard for us to fast forward, so work backwards. If your parents or grandparents had dealt with some of these lies, you'd say, it'd be so much easier for me. I'm having to untangle myself from this. In the same way, you could untangle the next generation by fast-forwarding the lie and say, I've got to get serious about getting free from this. Because your freedom can bring victory to those around you as well. In the book Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, there's a uh, story of Eustace, Cousin Eustace, who thinks his whole identity will be found if he could just get the dragon's treasure. So he comes across the dragon's treasure, and the dragon's gone. And there it is, there's rubies, and there's gold, and there's silver, and there's treasure chests. And he's like, I've made it! And he's so excited, he's gathering all this stuff up. He's like, I found the treasure. I am somebody! So much so that he falls asleep that evening on the dragon's treasure. He awakens to the sound of a dragon's tail moving. He looks to his left and sees a dragon's wing. He looks to the right and he sees another wing. He scared the dragon, has actually snuck up behind him. And then he reaches his left hand in front of him and realizes he has scales. He has become a dragon. Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure of the story, comes to Eustace and says, Eustace, you have become what you sought after. When your whole life is defined by the dragon's treasure, you turn into a dragon. I don't want to be a dragon! But you defined yourself by having the dragon's treasure. Can you free me from this? Yes, I can. Will it hurt? Yeah, it'll hurt. But you'll be free. Many of us, if we would fast forward the lies... Our success really will not make us happy. It will not bring us what we need. Getting everybody's approval, though you'd never have it, will never ultimately fix the wound in your life. You'll become a dragon. Fast forward the lies and find freedom. And lastly, number six, find acceptance from an unconditional source. Now, I'm only aware of one. There's lots of religions, lots of philosophies, but only grace is an unconditional source. 
Like maybe your puppy. That might be one for a while. You could find acceptance from your puppy for a little bit. But the only thing I know that which you can build your identity on that's unconditional is the grace of God. Because now you can enjoy success without it defining you. You can enjoy money without it mastering over you. You can enjoy pleasing people, but you're not devastated when they don't like you either. You have good days when you obey God and bad days. They don't define how God feels about you. What God did for you defines how he feels towards you. That's where freedom, that's how you perform from approval, not for approval. You find acceptance from an unconditional source because Jesus was the ultimate Jephthah. He came, he left heaven, and he came to earth. The very people who, who made, he made and created, he came to them, and they too questioned his birth. You don't belong to us. You have no inheritance in us. And they cast Jesus out. So much so that Isaiah tells us he was a man acquainted with grief and a man who was rejected by his people. He can grieve with you being rejected. Not only by his people, he'll be rejected and crucified by the Romans and even his best friends, his disciples, that he pours three years of his life into and they will not be with him at his hour of need. Worse than that, he will stand at the cross and even God will reject Jesus. And as he is enduring the pain of all our rejection from all time, he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, the ultimate Jephthah, endured the real rejection of God once so that none of us would ever have to experience it again. We would say, Jesus took my rejection. I believe that. I want that. I want him to be real to me. I want him to be real to me. Jephthah needed God to be real to him. If he was just real to me, oh, my life would be so much better. I'd be performing from a place not of hollowness or woundedness. I hear a story a few months ago about Brady James and his journey. And on his journey, he went from being a great performer who performed for approval to one who performed from approval. Listen to his story and what it meant for God and Jesus to be real to him. Well, that's a great prayer. It's an honest prayer. God, I... I don't know about the problem of evil. I don't know about all the different ways, but God, I want you to be real to me. More than anything, more than success, more than money, more than I need something bigger. I'll lead you into prayer. Maybe it's a way for you to respond and say, God, I don't want Jephthah's story to be my story. I want you to give me that approval I've been looking for. Let's pray together. Maybe you want to agree and say, God, Thank you that you can empathize with rejection. Because, God, you know what happened to me. And I don't talk about it. And I don't have the freedom to talk about it. Maybe you want to say, God, I've become a performer. But I'm not satisfied. Jesus, will you make me satisfied? Will you receive me for who I am, not what I do? Will you be real to me right now? Transform me. Help me find my identity in a place that's secure. And do with me as you would like. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. We have one more week left in our series, so thank you for joining us for Playbook. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. Uh, Brad is going to be down here. He'd love to talk to anyone and uh, share his story a little bit more in more detail if you'd like. If not, we'll see you next week. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. The third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks again.